Hello and welcome to 30 Minutes On, a podcast from American University Magazine. I'm your host, American Magazine staff writer, Andrew Erickson. We're launching this podcast as another way to connect with our readers, tell stories, and much like in our 3 Minutes On page in the magazine, dive deep into interesting stories by speaking with experts that are members of the AU community. Today in our inaugural podcast, we're spending 30 minutes on social media with AU School of Communication Assistant Professor Seth Shaheen. He's a faculty fellow in SOC's Internet Governance Lab, an associate editor at the Journal of Information Technology and Politics. As a researcher, he examines the big questions behind big data, digging into issues intersecting digital media and culture, including media sociology, social computing, social justice, and global media and politics. Last year, Shaheen and a colleague, Margaret Ang, a professor at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, researched the evolution of the alt-right on Twitter. They compiled and analyzed more than 300,000 retweets between 2009 and 2016 to learn more about the technological and social elements of white nationalism and how the alt-right managed to carve out a more pronounced role in American politics ahead of the 2016 election. We talk about that research, the evolution of social media, and what online interaction might look like in the future. Here's that interview. We hope you enjoy. So, Professor Shaheen, thank you for, for joining us and agreeing to be our inaugural guest on the uh, the 30 Minutes On podcast. We're so excited to have you. Thank you for having me, Andrew. I'm delighted to be on the show. So I just wanted to start off, um, I saw in last year you published an article um, and in January presented it with your colleague at the Hawaii International Conference on System Sciences, tracing the evolution of the alt-right in retweets. Can you talk me through how you and your colleague decided to look into this and this specific time period as it relates to uh, Twitter and the, uh, the alt-right? Yeah, so, uh, so in this study we look at the emergence and growth of uh, what is broadly called the alt-right movement, more specifically the white nationalist movement, between 2009 and 2016. The time period is pretty self-explanatory. The whole movement really uh, started in reaction to Barack Obama's election in 2008, end of 2008, as the first black president of uh, the country. There's this uh, conservative ideologue, if you will, called Paul Gottfried. Mm -hmm. He gave a speech about two to three weeks after Obama's election in which he, for the first time, uh, used the term the alternative right or the alt-right, at least in the way we understand it right now. And that speech called, well, it pointed at the failures of the quote-unquote neoconservatives who were in power under George Bush, uh, George W. Bush, and failures in terms of leading America to a point where it elects a black president, and hence the need for conservatives to return to their roots, uh, specifically white Christian American roots. Um, And uh, some of them, in fact, even call themselves themselves paleo-conservatives in contrast to neoconservatives. It's a bit funny, actually. Um, But yeah, so, so that's really when the, the white nationalist movement or the alt-right movement as we think of them right now um, began. And uh, so in our study, we look at this movement and its spread on, on online and on Twitter specifically uh, from the beginning of 2009 to the end of 2016, right. which is, so, so the argument really is that um, this movement wasn't anywhere. It didn't even exist before, before this period. 
uh, and it started off. It was obviously like any movement, a very French uh, movement. Right. And then within this eight-year period, it moves from the fringes to the center stage of American politics. And so, what we do in this study is uh, take a year-on-year -year look at how this movement grew, what factors could potentially explain its growth. Um, yeah. So that's what the study is about. And why Twitter specifically and why retweets? What can retweets tell us that replies or favorites can't tell us or that can't be captured yeah. maybe in mass? Well, you know, Twitter uh, has been a favorite for um, political conversations broadly since, since its outset, uh, but also for conversations that lie at the intersection of race and politics. Right. So we all know about um, black Twitter as a phenomenon, um, and people started talking about black Twitter as early as 2008, 2009, mm -hmm. that's kind of when a, uh, a report from the Pew Research Center uh, talked about uh, black Twitter. And that's in the infancy and, uh, of Twitter. Yes, absolutely. So Twitter still begins in 2006, and right. within two to three years, we have this phenomenon. Um, so a very close connection between racial identification, if you will, and, uh, and, and, and politics, and uh, which plays out on Twitter, has been from the outset. And then anecdotally, we also know that, you know, Trump uses Twitter a lot. So, you know, he, he's on, on Twitter all the time. And um, also in 2016, I found a study which looked at the presence of extremist groups on Twitter. So this study, uh, it, this was more of a white paper that came out of uh, uh, George Washington University's project on extremism, which uh, it was, I think, titled ISIS versus Nazis, something mm -hmm. like that. So, so there has been interest in extremism online, uh, but specifically Islamic extremism for for a long time, and mm -hmm. and on Twitter, how how uh, Islamic extremist terrorist groups use Twitter for various purposes, and so um, and and this study talked about how non-Islamist groups such as white nationalists uh, are also beginning to do that. So I took a look at that study, which had identified a few of these groups, and what I found really interesting was that we tend to think of the alt-right movement as this one one consolidated movement for many people just lunatics really you know right. that's that's that that was the perception for a lot of people uh, but what this study uh, showed was that there were different kinds of alt-right uh, groups. There was the Ku Klux Klan, there were Nazis, there were neo-confederates, there were also supporters of these cult-like figures such as Dr. David Duke. Right. And so uh, so this study basically identified a bunch of Twitter accounts that were propagating the alt-right ideology uh, in broad terms. So, and this happened to come out in 2016, and, and we saw we all know what happened in 2016. Right. Um, and so what it made me think about what had happened in the years preceding 2016. So how this, uh, basically how this movement had grown and what could be the potential reasons for its growth as it happened online. And so that's what led me to, to conduct the study. And I focused on, on retweets because retweets are a good means of identifying the growth of a particular movement in this case, right. uh, but it could be something else as well. Uh, you know, People interact with tweets in a variety of ways, like you said, they could like it, they could reply to it, things like that. Retweets specifically are typically understood to, to imply support 
the you know you basically retweet something because you want more people to to read it right. people that uh, who you know who who follow you you want them to read it as well uh, there is a difference between just retweeting and retweeting with comments so right. if you disagree with something you might still retweet it but then you'll retweet it with a comment and say whatever you want to say about that. I, f- I feel like we um, always see that statement in somebody's Twitter bio of retweets don't equal endorsements, right, but it, it often, right. it often yeah. does. But yeah. people, that, the reason why people say that is because, <laughs> you know, typically retweets do imply endorsement. Right. And uh, and so not always, of course, but but in general, yes. And, and the other thing to remember is that retweets also are a sort of identity signal, if you will. You know, you when you retweet, you often think, what are people going to think about you as a person right. when you are posting something online in general that happens uh, but specifically with retweets as well um, and so and so they lead to in research literature it is known that retweets can lead to the formation of communities and groups so you know you see something you want more people to see that you retweet that and then you know so people start uh, now communities don't form around one single retweet but if you retweet a particular idea expressed in different tweets, similar tweets, um, or if you retweet a particular organization or individual a lot, when a lot of people start doing that, then that's kind of how communities start forming on Twitter. And so uh, for the purposes of this study, uh, that's exactly what I was interested in, looking at how the tweets posted by the accounts identified as belonging to different alt-right constituencies on Twitter were being retweeted and how these retweets grew over time uh, between 2009 and 2016. So, yeah, so that's the reason why I chose to look at retweets along with my colleague, yeah. And by the end of, or by 2016, looking at the charts you and your colleague compiled, we're talking retweets in the six figures, you know, I think Mm -hmm. David Duke kind of centralizing around him, um, you're we're talking about 100,000 plus retweets. How do you and your colleague make sense of so many tweets and how do you begin to analyze uh, something so complex and something in such large numbers? Yeah, I mean, you know, this uh, data analytics has become very important in our lives uh, as we have more and more data mm-hmm. <laughs> that we produce and, and have to live and work with. Um, so data analytics as a field has grown significantly. I actually teach courses related to data analytics here at American University. In this paper specifically, what we did was use a method called social network analysis, which uh, identifies connections across Twitter users through retweets in this case. So so when person retweets another person, that's a connection. And when a lot of people are retweeting the same Twitter accounts, then they end up having these connections that that form a community or a group. And uh, social network analysis then can show you how these groups grow over time, who are the people who are at the center of these groups. Uh, and when I say people, I mean, uh, you know, it could be individuals, it could be um, organizations as well, anyone who has a Twitter account, basically. So so we use social network analysis to look at how these groups emerged and grew, but also the cross-linkages across these groups. Right. So how much are people who tend to tweet, say, Ku Klux Klan a lot, also retweet Nazis or neo-Confederates and, and so forth? And how do these 
trends change over time. And what we found was that initially it was uh, the Nazis and the new Confederates who were kind of the key key groups um, or clusters as they are called in network analysis. And then eventually it was uh, Dr. David Duke emerged as a significant third group and uh, eventually took over the conversation. So by, by 2016, the whole network sort of coalesced around Dr. David Duke mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and that's kind of when it became so big. So so that's one of the key arguments that uh, me and my colleague make in the paper that we argue that, you know, I mean, uh, there is significant activity in 2015 as well. There is significant growth in 2015. Right. Uh, and then it, in 2016, it's it's just basically going off the charts. And, and so our argument is that Trump didn't create white nationalism, as is sometimes assumed. But what Trump did was when he emerged in 2015 as 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 a potential candidate he enabled different white nationalist constituencies to come together mm. and rally around him so he became a figurehead so so they were able to share their own differences and and find this um, this person around him around whom they could rally and that is what made the movement so strong and powerful um, at least online, uh, it'll be interesting to see how these trends happened online, offline. Um, right. So, uh, which is something that we do not cover, but uh, our study, our online study, definitely indicates that this is a possibility offline as well, where uh, you know different uh, varieties of uh, white nationalists started to converge around Trump in 2015, 2016, and uh, that is what uh, made them as powerful as they became. Uh, and enable them to basically shape the election. And what was there anything about how these groups connected or about the scale of it that surprised you and your colleague? Well, the uh, really it was surprising for us to see how marked these differences were initially, right. because just like everybody else, we thought that you know these white nationalists is one constituency at the far right of the right. political spectrum, right? So um, it, it was really revealing because in general terms, we know that we, we, we hear about echo chambers online. Everybody uh, knows and talks about them, but we think of echo chambers primarily in terms of Democrat slash liberal versus Republican slash conservative, right? right? So, so two large echo chambers is what we think about. But then what we found was that not just the conservative echo chamber broadly, but the very far right end of the conservative echo chamber is itself splintered into a lot of these factions to begin with, at least. So echo chambers are much more deeply entrenched than we typically talk about. That was uh, that was something that we found was very interesting. Just the fact that the differences across Ku Klux Klan and Nazis and New Confederates, we would think of all of them as belonging to to one right. constituency, but they didn't. And you know, and these differences were real. So like people who were retweeting Nazis a lot were not retweeting New Confederates, mm. and vice versa. So, so that was the first thing that was surprising for us, the entrenched nature of uh, differences among white uh, nationalists. And then, and then also the process through which they, uh, they gelled uh, eventually, you know, they, they came together. And uh, that was less surprising, more, more revealing. Um, right. You know, we could very clearly see how Trump's emergence changed the lay of the land, if you will. And uh, like I said, enabled these splintered groups to 
come together so yeah and also the scale uh, eventually like in in 2016 like like you said as well there was significant growth in 2015 too but then in 2016 it's like several several times just exploded more. Yes, yeah it just explodes uh, in 2016 um and obviously we have another election coming up in yeah. november it feels like the lead up to it has been you know decades long but um how what what can we expect not just on the far right you know the the fringes of mm-hmm. of far right extremism but what can we expect on the left the right what are we seeing already in terms of social media trends that maybe could shape this 2020 election it's very hard to say right now yeah i haven't done a study so far on what's going on but i through the bits and pieces of analyses that I have done uh, for mostly for working with my students in the classes that I teach on data analytics. Right. I think one one big factor, uh, so especially among among Democrats, the Democratic primaries that are going right now, I think one thing that has really surprised me, perhaps, although it really shouldn't be a surprise, is that a lot of Republican support for Trump is not just pro-Trump, mm. but it's also anti-Democrat or anti-Democratic party in nature. I see people with bios that very explicitly talk about them being a former de- Democrat right. or how much they hate the Democratic party and things like that. So, so, so that is something that I don't know how much of it is recognized by the Democratic party as an institution and by Democratic Party supporters that, and, and, and I feel that that is something that that can potentially play a significant role Interesting. Um, in, the, in the general election. And recognizing that is something that, if you think at it from, from a Democratic Party perspective, is something that, that should factor in the primaries as well. So, so my, my gut feeling would be that a candidate who is least associated with the Democratic Party would have a better chance of uh, getting more of the swing votes Mm. in the general election. So that is, I think, something that, at least as far as social media trends go, is something that has um, struck me as being quite significant. Switching gears a little bit, I know um, you started out as a journalist. You were eventually the, you wrote about politics, defense, social issues. You were the news editor at Mint, which is India's uh, second largest business newspaper. Can you walk me through your journalism career, how you got your start and how you how you made your way as a journalist? Yeah, um, you know, I, I started... Uh, writing for newspapers uh, in India. So I'm from India originally. Um, started writing for newspapers in India while I was in college. I was doing my undergrad degree in journalism. Did some work on television as well. Eventually moved to working for online news organizations. Moved around a, uh, quite a bit. Studied in, in England. Did my master's there. So used to write for BBC websites and some local publications while I was there. Also worked in the Middle East for a few years in between. Then went back to India. Um, but that was around the time when I started thinking of moving away from journalism and building a career in academia. So some of it had to do with the fact that as a journalist, you work on these daily <laughs> stories. Right. Um, 
headlines and deadlines. Headlines and deadlines, exactly, <laughs> right? Um, and, you know, I mean, after a few years, it kind of starts getting a bit too much. I mean, um, intellectually, it was just no longer satisfying for me that I would write like an 800-word story and then move on to the next story. I know you can still do long-form journalism, but it's uh, rarer and not everybody gets to. With daily deadlines, <laughs> yeah. it's hard. Yeah, uh, yeah. so yeah, so, 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 so that was one, one big reason. The other reason was my general interest in politics and uh, you know international relations um, uh, as well and uh, so for all of these reasons and I, I wanted to study these things more you know learn and understand them better intellectually and so that's what made me think about uh, moving into academia yeah so so I, so I moved uh, to the US joined a PhD program at the University of Texas at Austin briefly worked at Bowling Green State University uh, and uh, have been here at American University since the fall of 2018 great is is there any aspect of social media that caught us by caught us by surprise? It seems like, you know, the internet was always thought of as this thing to bring us together, to bring us closer, build these connections. Yet, we talk about bubbles um, and things that drive wedges between us. Is there anything that do you think in general people, not just academics but regular people, got it wrong and, and predicted this wrong about the impact of not only the the internet becoming more mainstream but also social media platforms as well? Yeah, um, you know, so this certainly happened and it wasn't the first time that it happened either. I mean, even with television, some people saw television as leading to what one theorist called a global village. So people across the globe, um, across nations becoming interconnected and living as though uh, they were living in a village where everybody knows everybody and, you know, things like that. Uh, that was the expectation uh, from television uh, at the outset, and then eventually that's not what happened. Toward the late 1990s, there were books um, talking about how television was leading to the breakdown of even local communities. Yeah. And, uh, you know, um, people were just staying at home <laughs> and watching TV, and they were interacting less and less with each other uh, in terms of sort of human face-to-face -face interactions and uh, the social and political uh, consequences of uh, of that phenomenon. Similarly with the internet, initially it was expected that the internet would uh, break down all kinds of boundaries, physical boundaries. Um, some people talked about uh, the post-national turn where you know nations would no longer remain relevant in, 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 a, in a world connected by the internet. Uh, others talked about um, how internet allowed us to leave behind our physical limitations, uh, other kinds of physical limitations, bodily uh, limitations, if you will. So like, basically their expectation was that race would suddenly stop being relevant because, because you know, online people could be anything. So yeah, so, so, so those were the expectations. Uh, red flags were being raised right from the outset, yeah. but people who suggested otherwise were in a minority up until I guess 2016 <laughs> when, when we when we realized that uh, that's not exactly what was happening uh, that I mean in, in general that was not the direction in which the world was moving um, and then specifically the role that internet and social media in particular were playing in um, leading to a more fragmented splintered society so yeah so, so the, uh, I, I think it was quite a surprise to to a lot of people there are 
people who have written books post 2016 who have acknowledged that you know they had very different opinions initially right. and they have different opinions now <laughs> <laughs> i see you use the word identity or, or techno social a lot in your writing mm-hmm. how how do technology and society come into play in your research how have you come to define that word techno-social mm-hmm. and what does the future of, of studying something like that look like? Yeah, so techno-social really relates to the idea that our experiences, are, our social experiences are significantly shaped by technology, even as technology itself uh, is shaped by the kind of society that we, really, that we live in. So it's a mutually constitutive process, um, if you will. For instance, our experiences on social media, as I was saying, we have not been able to leave behind our physical realities, be it race or religion or or whatever, when we go online. Our online activities and actions are significantly shaped by who we are offline. And again, I would, uh, you know, the paper that we were talking about, I've called it white Twitter, to, you know, because it's uh, focused on, on white nationalism. We also briefly touched on the phenomenon of black Twitter. So, so the title of my paper is, um, you know, is a take on on the phenomenon of black. Um, so, which, like, like I said, you know, it, it became apparent in the very very early days of uh, Twitter. So, these social realities, if you will, shape our online activities, and then what we do online or in digital spaces, broadly speaking, technologically mediated digital spaces, they shape our our lives offline as well, right? In terms of the fact that social media, as we now realize, played a significant role in the outcome of the 2016 election. Not just in terms of the growth of white nationalism, which right. is what uh, my research focused on, but in so many other ways that other scholars have uh, have written and talked about, uh, other commentators keep talking about in in newsprint as well. Even before that, if we look at phenomena such as the Arab uprisings, uh, 2010-11 onward, they were significantly influenced by the fact that people certainly had social media. So yeah, so, so, so even as our physical social realities shape our activities online, our, our online activities end up shaping our politics and our society. So, so that's what techno-social means, this, this close interrelationship between technology and society. And I realize it's literally impossible to predict, but what do, what do you see as the next 15, 20 years of, of social media? What does the next big million, billion person platform look like? Um, so, you know, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't talk only or think only in terms of how social media might change in the next few years, but how some of the underlying technology that enables social media mm. is changing and what kinds of larger changes that it will, uh, it, it, it could bring. So, so I think one big change that we are going to see very soon is uh, the emergence of the fifth generation of uh, mobile telephony. Now, social media became as big as they did because of the emergence of initially the third and then the fourth generation, right. you know, in the noughties and the Tense. Once people uh, moved on from the Motorola Razor to the yeah first yeah exactly few because you know I mean, with uh, yeah. with uh, uh, with greater ability to to transfer data at much faster rates with the third and then the fourth generation people started moving away from so earlier the 
the social aspect of the internet used to be places like chat rooms and uh, bulletin boards and things like that you know which were very sort of text uh, text based organized around topics and themes and so forth and uh, and then with 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 social media with the emergence of Facebook and uh, I mean, not that social media didn't exist previously, right. uh, MySpace and all of that, um, but with Facebook and Twitter, that changed significantly. And uh, social, the you know the social aspect of online kind of started becoming a lot more organized around our profiles on these on these platforms, mm-hmm. right? So, so so we moved away from these topic or theme based uh, chat rooms and bulletin boards to more profile or or oriented uh, platforms such as Facebook and Twitter. And you know the other change was uh, the growth of multimedia because of you know our ability to share more data at f- much faster speeds. We moved on from just sending or posting text to to photos and and, and eventually video, and then like in the last two 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 years or so, I would say video oriented platforms such as TikTok have become exploded, you know, ex- yeah. exploded exactly, and uh, and that's again a result of increasing internet speed, right? So it's really important to look at the underlying technology that it's the changes in those technologies that led to the emergence of social media to begin with and and the shift from web to web 1.0 to web 2.0 as we as we talk about it in terms of you know the growth of uh, user generated content online and i think with 5g that is going to change um, mm. a lot once again so we will see a lot more vr ar based applications uh, becoming a lot more popular uh, the internet of things will become much bigger than it already is again 5g will not introduce these changes but it will just make them operate on a very different scale and and that i think will lead to more wider changes in in in, in the kinds of applications that we that we use uh, the ways in which we use technology yeah, so I think I think social media uh, will continue to to change and evolve. Something we are already saying, like I mentioned, is the increasing use of videos, mm-hmm. um, uh, right? Um, and so with uh, uh, with five G, I think, like I said, we might see more virtual reality based, virtual reality oriented social media applications. And then the, the other big change I, I see happening is with uh, artificial intelligence. So so again, that's not something new, uh, has been around um, for a lot longer. But artificial intelligence, um, the, the use of artificial intelligence has been growing continuously. And I think with 5G, we will see uh, the ability to control more and more things remotely and so 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 that will again make artificial intelligence uh, based applications more common so so yeah so, so those are some of the major changes that i see happening in the technology space broadly and then of course they will have larger social and political consequences right. really quickly before we get out of here what are you what are you teaching what are you working on now so i'm teaching um couple of courses this semester. One is called Digital Media and Culture, in which we talk exactly about the things that we were talking about right. just now. <laughs> Digital media, technology, its implications for society, culture, politics, how the two feed off each other, uh, issues of identity and community. And it's amazing how much I learn from my students because they really are living these technologies, right? Like uh, a lot of what we think of as digital media culture,
share is is the lived uh, experiences of um, of 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 our undergraduate students. So yes, yeah, so I learn a lot from my students in those classes. And uh, the other course I'm teaching is called Taming Big Data, and that is primarily about data analytics. So I teach students how to mine data from from social media platforms, from websites, but also from news archives and you know other sources of uh, large quantities of data, and then how to analyze them. So I teach a little bit of coding in that class. I, I teach them things like machine learning and uh, sentiment analysis. And most students in that class are undergraduates, uh, but I do have a couple of uh, doctoral students as well mm. in that class. Yeah, because you know um, the ability to work with and analyze large quantities of data just becoming so central to pretty much everything that we do right now. It also helps them understand some of the larger social issues that pertain to what we call the datafication of our society. So the implications of all of the data that we are generating and collecting and, and sharing for privacy, for instance, exactly how companies and governments are able to to work with the data to learn as much as they are able to learn about us and, and, and make very precise profiles about us. Being able to work with data allows them to not just know that intellectually, but actually be able to see exact how, how that happens. And so, so I think that's, that's one of the cool aspects of that class. I'm working on a couple of uh, interesting projects. One is kind of along the lines of what we were speaking about earlier, which is how nationalism hasn't gone away, but has in fact become evidently become more entrenched. Sure. Uh, you know, yeah, in 2020, like 20 years ago, people were talking about how internet uh, was going to create a post-national society. Today, we have populist leaders around the world who are contesting on a platform that is built on nationalism so even their appeal to to racial or religious identities is closely tied to national identity trump's make america great again uh, slogan is one example of that so, uh, so so that paper explores how nationalism is expressed online and how how deeply entrenched that is and and what are the different ways in which uh, that happens how it relates to our uh, other kinds of identities like 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 race and religion and uh, and, and and even partisan identities yeah so, so that's one project i'm um, uh, really excited about the other project is looking at online conversations about Europe's general data protection regulation, uh, which was uh, implemented in the middle of 2018. And purportedly, that uh, regulation was meant to help common users of the internet have more control over their personal data and put constraints on the ability of uh, big tech to, to misuse users personal data mm-hmm. but what i found is that online conversations about these regulations have become have been taken over by 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 technology companies so uh, which is really important because instead of uh, uh, privacy rights activists or even lawmakers who worked to create the regulation it is companies like facebook and google and 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 a bunch of smaller technology companies especially us based companies who are driving the conversation about what this regulation is its its implications its effects and things like that and so the the conversation um, shifted from being 
you know, this regulation being about privacy rights to this regulation being bad for business. <laughs> so, so that shift and how that happened online, I think it was it, it was interesting to see. And uh, yeah, I hope to publish that paper um, sometime soon as well. Great. Well, I look forward to reading it. Um, thank you very much. Thank you so much for joining us and for for being our, our first guest. I appreciate. Well, once again, thank you for having me. This was uh, this was delightful. And that will do it for the first episode of the 30 Minutes on podcast from American University Magazine. Thank you so much to our inaugural guest, Seth Shaheen, for joining us and chatting about his research in social media. Be on the lookout for our March 2020 magazine, which hits mailboxes soon. And we welcome your feedback. Please let us know what you think about the magazine and the podcast by emailing magazine at american.edu. And be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at AU underscore American Mag. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.